Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that the first book from Faith Matters Publishing is now available. It's called All Things New and was written by Fiona and Terrell Givens. When I finished the book, I just thought this has so much potential to actually change lives. They go through and trace the roots of our religious vocabulary and show how so many of these words have become totally unmoored from their original foundation and how a lot of those traditions have been carried forward for hundreds and even thousands of years and are in a lot of ways still damaging us today. And then they dive into how we can reformulate our language in healthy and inspiring ways. This book is so healing. It's hopeful. It's a totally paradigm shifting book that you will not be able to put down. You can pick up a copy for yourself or for friends and family. It's available at Desert Book on Amazon, Audible, and Apple Books. We're so grateful for Terrell and Fiona and all of the amazing work that they've done here. All right, that's all for the book for now, but we have a lot more to come. Thanks as always, and here's the episode. Is there a conflict between the science of evolution and the gospel? Can accepting and understanding evolution actually enhance our faith and our understanding of how God works in the world? In this two-part conversation, Terrell Givens sits down with Dr. Heath Ogden, professor of evolutionary biology at Utah Valley University, to explore this big question together. For more information on the Big Questions Project, visit faithmatters.org, and we hope you enjoy this conversation. Professor Heath Ogden, Associate Professor of uh, Biology at Utah Valley University. Um, welcome to Faith Matters. Thank and you. Thank you for coming to talk today about Darwin and science and evolution and Latter-day Saintism. Um, thank you. It's good to be here. First question out of the gate. I understand you're an, an evolutionary biologist. Yeah. How in the world do you manage to get a temple recommend? <laughs> well, I'm the bishop. Oh, well, that helps. <laughs> so that makes it easy. <laughs> Well, so the the serious side of that joke is uh, there still is a fairly widespread perception uh, among Latter-day Saints that um, there's a conflict, an inherent conflict between science and religion, between um, evolution and Latter-day Saint doctrine in particular. And I understand you have some data to yeah. actually substantiate that dreadful uh, fact. Yeah, I mean, not just not just me. Others have been looking at this for a long time, but down at UVU for a general biology course. So this is a good representation of the general public, right, here in Utah County, and only about 35 to 40 percent maybe accept evolution with everything, maybe even including human evolution, right, at the beginning of the semester. Right. After a semester of helping them to understand a little bit more, they can change their minds and maybe you get up to 75 or 80 percent change. But there's still people who it doesn't matter what you probably teach them, they are going to, you know, just not accept evolution. And in your experience, why? I mean, something, that, that's, that's an impressive improvement, but right. it's still a distressing shortfall. Sure. So why? Why the reluctance? So we've studied that as well, because we've done interviews with students and asked them, you know, what is it that you can, what, why can you change your mind and why can't you change your mind? And there seems to be a few factors that are important. One factor is that they have not been exposed to evolution correctly, and so they've got lots of misconceptions about it. 
Another factor, particularly for um, LDS populations, is the fact that they've grown up thinking they can't accept evolution, that it's not a possibility within our paradigm. And then a third factor is they've never had really good role models that have just said, I'm an evolutionary biologist and I'm a believer. Yeah. And as soon, and it turns out that that last, uh, the role model effect in the study that we just concluded turned out to be the most important factor actually was just the fact that if there's an evolutionary biologist or, or a role model that can say, I believe in, in deity or in God or whatever, but I also accept evolution and everything right. that it entails. Let me, um, let me ask a couple of questions um, for the benefit of those who still do have reservations or st still do perceive um, contradictions or tensions. Um, one criticism of evolution that comes from a number of prominent intellectuals, I'm thinking of both philosophers and uh, cosmologists, I'm thinking of uh, oh, Tom Nagel, um, um, John Joe McFadden, or Stuart Kaufman. There, there's a whole subcategory, it seems to me, of, of, of thinkers today who are arguing that Darwin is good insofar as he goes, but he's, he, Dar Darwinian evolution is wholly inadequate to the task of fully accounting for the complexity and the relative rapidity of evolutionary development uh, on the Earth. And so they're, they're looking to make way for other additives to the theory that, that don't really go into the um, intelligent design camp, but looking for principles of self-organization, those kinds of things. What, what do you have to say about that general? Well, the, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that evolution does a wonderful job at explaining the diversity of life on this planet. So you, you don't think it needs it, it, there is we don't assist. we don't need an assist really. Now there are certain aspects that we don't fully understand yet, and that's the great thing about science. Science is tentative, science is humble, and it recognizes that it doesn't know everything, and it recognizes that it's willing to change if new data says you need to go in a new direction. For example, speciation. We don't fully understand everything about speciation yet. We're getting close, and we'll be better, right, at that. And so I think that though the, the pattern that has been shown since Darwin and coming forward, because we've learned a lot about evolution since Darwin, right, a lot. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, what, but what's great about Darwin's idea is that it's absolutely been supported by all of the evidence that has come forward. That's the hallmark of a great idea. And so there is no need to start to invoke other kinds of things within the evolutionary history. Now there are areas, like in Nagel's book, where he talks about consciousness, uh, we don't have a good understanding of that. But I don't know that it's necessary to immediately invoke deity in a gap of our knowledge, because when right. you, history has shown that when we do that, science fills in that gap, and then what does that Although do? Although in his case, he doesn't invoke deity, right? He right. invokes he, principles of self-organization. Yeah. And maybe there is. I mean, we don't know. I mean, there's right now, how would you test that in the scientific framework? Right, that, right. that there's some supernatural... Well, that's why he's a philosopher. Right, exactly. So we don't know that there is a that there is this... We don't start have a way with dealing that. Well, what addressing I love about, about their direction, I want to push this just a little further because yeah. I'm a fan of, of the Pratts as, as early theologians and Orson Pratt and his theories of panpsychism, uh, the inherent, the, the intelligence that is inherent in all creation. It sounds very, very much like uh, a Thomas Nagel or a Stuart Kaufman. And it seems to me that, that their ideas allow us to move in the direction of finding a role for not direct intervention on the part of God, but for principles of intelligence and, and other eternal ideals that are important to Latter-day Saints yeah. without sacrificing Darwin. And, and what I thought of when I was reading those parts was actually 
spirit is matter. It's just purer and finer, right? And we don't right. know how to detect it and to measure it. Now, there may be a point when science has those tools. I don't know. Maybe not. Right. But I'm willing to accept that, that worldview that Joseph Smith gave us, that everything is in some way... Intelligent. It, well, intelligent, and everything is somehow part of the universe and yeah. is material. Because so, sometimes people say, well, that's the immaterial. Well, I don't know. According to Joseph Smith, spirit is matter. Yeah. yeah. We just don't know how to deal with it yet in science. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. Um, and so I like that idea, and that's what the Pratts also were bouncing off on, was that idea of, of Joseph Smith right. and Doctrine and Covenants. Right, so. right. Okay, one other problem, or perceived problem in the minds of, of many. We believe that um, <clears throat> we are created in the image and likeness of God. And of course, as Latter-day Saints, we take that much further, more literally, than any other Christians. If that is the case, then we can't embrace a doctrine which holds or maintains that that as we now exist as the end of this long process is purely the result of randomness and chance, right? Because we believe all along we had to be evolving toward an anthropomorphic, right, godlike being. And according to people like uh, Richard Dawkins and others, if you were to replay the tape of evolution again, we would come out with completely different results. So those two seem to me to be fundamentally incompatible. Well, yeah, except for it's not completely diff different resu results. There are physics at play, and the physics put boundaries upon what would happen if you did rerun the clock. Now, a great okay. example of this is actually look at um, uh, Australia and the rest of the world, right? In Australia, they, their mammals, which were the marsupials, were, were confined to just Australia. But you watched that evolutionary history play out. What did they develop? A wolf, a rat... You know, uh, even a bipedal kind of or organism, and and uh, and a bunch of other things, moles even. And then you go and look at the rest of the world where there were placental mammals. What did you get? A wolf, a mole, a rat, even like a flying squirrel. There's a flying squirrel that's a placental, and there's a flying squirrel that's and a completely marsupial. separate lines of evolution. And they're completely separate lines of evolution. So what it teaches us is that the same pressures that are being placed because of physics, chemistry, and the environment because there are similar niches in Australia as there are in other parts of the world. Though evolution, as it's tinkering and tinkering, it found body forms and types and morphologies that were repeated, repeatedly created right. over and over again. Okay, that's pretty satisfactory. And, and so, if again, we, we can't do this, but if we could go out into the universe and look at other worlds, I mean, that's the experiment right there. Are, do other worlds also go through an evolutionary process where maybe they end up with a humanoid form? Anything why not? Sure, why not? I, I see no reason why that's not a possibility, because you would always want to have something that has a large head. You know, if you're in water and moving around, you want a large head with all of your sensory structures up on that part of the head. Right. If you want to get out of the water, you need limbs. Four limbs was a good idea, but six limbs has worked just fine for the insects. You know, so, but you would probably, there's no reason you wouldn't maybe also produce that kind of a figure. I, at least I see no problem with that. Okay. So. One more elephant in the room we have to address, and that is um, Adam. Uh, in earlier generations of church history, uh, prominent thought leaders insisted that evolution was radically incompatible with the belief that Adam was the first human, uh, and that he's not millions of years old. So where do, we, where do we go with that one? Well, the great thing about this problem of Adam and Eve is that the church multiple times has said we don't have an official position on this. 
Okay, and you can go to the New Era 2016 October issue there, and it says we don't have an official position. However, in that same one, then they start to give a few ideas that seem incompatible with what we know about science. Here's how I think about it. When it says first man, I can only interpret that in light of all of the evidence that I know about human evolution, about the physical body of Homo sapiens evolving. So in light of all of that evidence that I've learned about, the only compatible reconciling way that I can do this right now, maybe there's another way, but first man must include Homo sapien body, spiritual offspring of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, and makes or learns about the gospel and makes covenants with that deity. And that's what made Adam and Eve special, and that's what made them the first. Okay. They were the first to make covenants. Good. Yeah, I'm, 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 I think, embraced my own views of a very similar position. I was influenced by the thinking of Kenneth Miller. Is mm-hmm. that the right name? Kenneth yeah, Miller, Kenneth Miller. The, Miller, the yeah. Catholic uh, evolutionary biologist, yeah. who tried to reconcile evolution with his Catholic theology, mm-hmm. makes the argument that God allowed evolutionary processes to unfold without direction and randomly, and when a being arrived on the scene capable of entering into relationship with God, at that moment God placed a spirit. The breath of life was and calls that, that yeah. person Adam. Yeah. So uh, that's that's kind of and so that that relaxes the assumption first of all of where they had to live, when they had to live, and how long they had to be in the Garden of Eden. Right. If you if you right. just take all of that away, it then relaxes that assumption, and then it it just it seems like this whole problem of of trying to reconcile Adam and Eve with scientific um, evidence concerning human evolution, it just, it, just, it just bubbles away yeah. when you do that. Yeah. What about the origin of life itself? Is that, is that a, a perceived problem? Um, unjustifiably, maybe, but do many students anticipate that, that Darwin is making a claim to give an explanation for that? Yeah, yeah. Students come with that misconception, and so does the general public. Clearly, the theory of evolution really doesn't say anything about the origin of life. That's a completely separate separate but related idea. Um, and I would say that, they, that science is really close to having a really good working theory. Probably I would still call it a hypothesis. There's a hypothesis of the origin of life, and it has to do with RNA molecules being able to both carry information and perform reactions, you know, have, have some sort of uh, reactive ability, and that there's, uh, you know, there's a membrane, and, and, and so you finally have this kind of like simple, simple, simple cell, right? But that organization, that origin of the first cell has no bearing on whether evolution is the explanation for the diversity two of life from every, it's two separate problems. And that's why I call it the origin of species, not the origin of life. That's exactly right. right. Yeah. Okay, final question. Um, do you, are you, really, are, are you willing to acknowledge any unresolved apparent problems or conflicts with which science presents the believer, especially in the area of evolutionary biology? So I'm not sure if I understand the question. So do I still see that there is conflict between my own worldview and what science has taught me? Yeah, in any regard whatsoever. Or or where you could sympathize with a student who says, yeah, I still can't quite buy into the modern scientific kind of corpus of knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I can sympathize with the students who think that, but that's because I went through that same process. When I was a 19-year-old going out on the mission, I I was a young Earth creationist. And so I'm embarrassed by the things that I taught because I was reading works that were saying no death before the fall, you know, no humans before Adam and Eve and things like this. And so I can clearly sympathize with students who have that. What I found, again, is that if we can clearly explain what evolution is, if we can clearly explain what the doctrine of the church is, and then if we can have good role models modeling how to work your way through this, 
it may take a while. It took me years yeah. to get through this. Um, and, and I'm not all the way through. Yeah, I, I mean, if new evidence comes forward, either theologically or from science, I may have to adjust my worldview, and I'm okay with doing that. I think that's a healthy uh, position to take. So if I understand you correctly, would it be fair to say that at this point in your life, you find your scientific training and investigations and, and research uh, not just no longer an obstacle, but an actual asset to your life as yeah. a disciple? It's enhanced my testimony. It's deepened my thought and meditative, you know, what I think about the gospel. It has made God bigger, not made him smaller. It's, it's made me appreciate him as the fully... I mean, he is. If who's the best scientist? He is. You know, who do I aspire to be like him? And so, for me, it's 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 strengthened everything that I know. Now, it's that doesn't mean that I've had to get rid of ideas here and there that I always held as a really. I used to be a very black and white Mormon. I've had to get rid of black and white Mormonism because I realize now that this world is messy, and evolution has taught me that. This world is messy, and there's there's diversity. But that with that messiness, you get wonderfulness that comes with it. Your your concluding remarks remind me of one of my favorite quotations from Brigham Young when he when he said, "When the Lord comes and turns the earth into a glorified globe of a uh, urim and thumb, uh, a sea of glass, how will that be accomplished?" And he answers the question. He says by the angels who are best instructed in chemistry. <laughs> That's a shame he said chemistry and not biology. Yeah, but but I, whatever. But I think the principle is the same. <laughs> right. So, uh, so thanks for being with us today, yeah. We hope you enjoyed this Big Questions conversation. We would appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate this podcast series on iTunes. For more Big Questions, visit faithmatters.org and click on the Big Questions tab. Thanks for listening.